52 in English, uh, chemist and x-ray uh, crystallographer captured this image. This uh, image, famously known as photograph 51, completely reset the course of medicine and uh, forensic science, biological science, and has also been um, you know, provided food security for those uh, living uh, farm wheat farmers in Ethiopia. This photograph was taken, or this x-ray was taken by Rosalind Franklin in King's College in London, and it's our first glimpse into the deep structure that kind of lies at the code level of all of biological life. Uh, this is the first uh, x-ray of uh, DNA. Now, there's lots of controversy around how this uh, photograph got into the hands of Cambridge uh, researchers, James Watson and Fra Francis Crooks, but one is they are usually credited with the kind of discovery of DNA. However, it was this work, it was this photograph, it was uh, her work that um, really, um, this photographic image of the double helix of DNA that began the most significant scientific revolution of the modern era. So we have the moment, we've got the photograph, and then we have the wave upon wave of all the implications uh, that followed after that and rippled out uh, from her work. Um, we've got the Human Genome Project, we've got gene therapy, we've got disease-resistant crops in vulnerable uh, food security areas, uh, courtroom settings, growing skin for burns patients, they're all a part of um, the revolution that came through the discovery of uh, DNA. See, history changes not because of one moment or one significant event. Actual history uh, changes by the accumulation of related events that often revolve around or are stemmed from a moment. Now, because of the disruption uh, we've all had, you know, over the last you know, long period of time because of COVID-19, you know, it's become such a dominant feature in all of our discussions and has taken up a huge amount of um, emotional uh, bandwidth. And look, you know, no one, I don't know anyone who's not been affected uh, by um, the pandemic situation. Everyone's been affected to some degree or other, right? But, and while it's proper and it's right to respond to all of that with a real degree of focus and uh, seriousness, you know, like the disciples, though, we can, get, we can lose Jesus in the midst of this. We can lose the big picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. We can lose the calling of the church. You can lose your own calling as you get, kind of have to deal with the day-to-day -day realities, these urgent matters that keep needing to be attended to. And often, you know, we just kind of lose the big picture as we kind of have to deal with these very, you know, very important uh, moments. And you know what? Everyone's life has been affected to some degree or other. And it's real people, real people that we know. Um, and while it's right and proper that we do respond with real seriousness and focus to all of this, um, you know, what I want to do is also reset our vision for who we are as a church and reset a little bit of our vision of, you know, what's God calling us into. I want to recalibrate the horizon line of our lives around, re-center again around the person of Jesus, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, not only in our lives, but also the healing work that God wants to do and is doing in the world. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. And we're going to camp out here for the next eight weeks. I personally feel that eight weeks is not long enough, but we'll do eight weeks. We can take a poll at the end of it and just see how we feel. Is that a good idea? 
We could do one extra, right? Just to wrap it all up. Um, now, you, like uh, Stacy said, as you may or may not know, the Book of Acts is actually a two part of a two-volume um, uh, set of books within the New Testament. And um, Luke was a co-worker of Paul. So in Paul one is the, was one of the leading um, kind of early leaders of uh, the church movement. And uh, the Book of Acts um, kicks off like this. And you get a bit of a hint how, how the two volumes are connected together. He says, referring to the Gospel of Luke, um, the book of Acts opens like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the key word here is the word began. It's about the Gospel of Luke. The first volume is about what Jesus began uh, to do and teach. So you've got to think your way back into the first creation story. You know, the first creation story right at the very first book of the Bible, the book um, of Genesis. And it begins like this. We've got the earth, and it's unformed, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, there's darkness and chaos covering uh, around the earth, and this is unformed mass, so to speak. Yet in the middle of that, God overcomes that chaos and darkness and forms a garden with the idea that humanity as co-rulers of this garden would, would eventually push out the boundaries of this garden and so that one day with these boundaries totally pushed out, the whole earth would be like the Garden of Eden. It would be filled with God's presence. It would be wonderfully ordered, a place of beauty and life and uh, flourishing. And so that's, but in a similar way, what Luke is saying in his gospel is in the person of Jesus going to the cross, overcoming the power of sin and death. In his resurrection, Jesus has launched a new creation in the midst of the old. Does that make sense? The old creation is still existing, but in the midst of the old, Jesus is launching a new creation through his death and resurrection. And it talks about Jesus' resurrection as being Jesus being the firstborn of the new creation, with the idea being that now Jesus overcoming the power of sin and death and co-ruling with God. You know, you've got that opening scene in John's gospel, the last scene of John's gospel. Jesus is placed where after the resurrection? In a garden. And it's what day of the week? It's the First day of the week. So what, again, they're trying to echo the point of saying that Jesus' resurrection is like the, the first kind of Genesis story, the first, um, the first creation story. The idea being that co-ruling, that this resurrection, this new creation, what began here, would slowly be pushed out and ripple out. And once again, all of the world would be restored the same way that Jesus has been restored. The goal here is that through the resurrection, through the power of the Spirit, actually God has begun to revolutionize a new creation. This is not just a revolution around politics or culture or science or a software upgrade. This is a revolution that touches the deepest level, right at the structural level of all of creation. And it's begun and it's happened with the person of Jesus. And the book of Acts tells 
tells about how this has rip, is beginning to ripple out. So we have the event. We have Jesus' death and resurrection. And then you've got wave after wave of how the seeds of that gospel has been taken by the Spirit and transplanted. And slowly and surely and quietly and often hidden, but absolutely surely, like seasons, like the turning of the tide, this resurrection, this revolution is taking place, and Jesus and the Spirit are leading his people through a whole revolutionized way of being human. So that, in a nutshell, is why what the book of Acts is um, heading towards. And we, like I said, we're going to dig into that, and we're going to unpack more of that over uh, the next eight weeks. For today, what I want to do is actually start right at the end of the book of Acts. In the very last sentences, as the book of Acts closes, um, it says this. Let's, um, ooh, let's go to the book. Oh, there we go. Right at the end of the book of Acts, it closes like this. When uh, we got to Rome, that's Luke uh, and um, Paul, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness and without hindrance. Today, I want to talk about the importance of having kingdom vision and uh, boldness. And this is particularly important to us as we come back from, um, you know, basically a very, very long time away. And culturally, and, you know, I think in, in our mindset, we can be in a position of where we kind of like spiritually withdraw or spiritually uh, shut down. We don't kind of like, there's a sense of which we can be um, kind of like a learned helplessness uh, creep into um, what we do. And I think the need of the hour is, in fact, a real kind of boldness and a real um, a sense of kingdom vision. And by no means do I mean that we actually shut down struggle. You know, all these things are very, very real. You know, I know that these things are real. I mean, I have personally really struggled through the pandemic season. I found myself strangely exhausted. But the need of the hour is... Um, real boldness and um, a kingdom vision. You know, often our tendency in, for today's world is that we are just can be so self-centered and so, such, you know, operate as such uh, individuals. And this is really just a key symptom of what it means to be swimming in the water of Western secularism. You know, this is our life. This is like, it's like swimming out on a West Coast uh, beach. You, know, you get caught in this rip. There's a drift towards self-centeredness self -centeredness and kind of an individualism. In 1984, you know, an ominous date to be sure, in 1984, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who's this great, um, is a very well-known um, theologian and uh, cultural commentator, he wrote in his book, the great, wrote this book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And in this quite prophetic book, Schaeffer said that if all the church cares about is personal peace and affluence, which is I'm happy, and those around me have all that they need. If that is all that, you know, if that's what the church basically becomes about, then the church is fundamentally over in the West. When all I care about is how I'm doing and how those around me are doing, and if that's all we care about, the church is fundamentally over because there's no Christianity in that. 
That's just Western secularism, and the church just becomes a slight spiritual glove over top of that agenda, and we lose all of the power and all of the purpose for which God uh, set us in the, in the world. There's no vision for anything else you know, more than that, no power for what God wants to do uh, in the world. And the reality is, you know, God is always looking for people who care about what God cares about. God is always looking for people who will look beyond the boundaries of their own immediate concerns. And, you know, the need, you know what's the need of the hour? What's the Spirit placed around me? Where has the Spirit located me? And what does God uh, want to do there? And so I want to ask you this morning... As we roll back into 2022, you know, I know that you've got to make bank. I know that, you know, workers can be a pretty tough situation, you know, particularly if you own your own business. There's lots of challenges there. I know there's lots of challenges heading back to school and adjusting to school life, university, or you've got to kickstart, <coughs> excuse me, your career again. And I'm not wanting to minimize any of that at all, not for one uh, second. But I also am asking, what is the thing that God has placed in your heart to, ta- to advance the kingdom of God? What is the thing that God has placed in your heart to take responsibility for and uh, to see grow? You know, when the church is living with this sense of the revolution of new creation, um, God fills the church with kingdom vision. You know, some people, um, I've heard, oh, sorry, I've, um, some person just said to me recently, another uh, vicar, basically we're in, kind of on, um, having a bit of a chat about how's life going, he lives down the line, and he was basically saying, oh, you know, what's it like um, at St. Augustine's? Man, it must be tough. There's so many leaders at St. Augustine's, and this, you know, they've kind of, a lot of people with a lot of vision, it must be so hard to lead. And I had to say, do you know, to be honest, what's hard to lead is people with no vision, that's hard to lead. People with vision, they're not unleadable. They're actually, you've got to point them in the right direction. That's actually fine. Hands off St. Augustine's. And it's really great to be uh, in uh, the setting. But, you know, when the church is filled with the Spirit, there is a sense of kingdom um, vision about it. And so you might want to just take a moment now and say, hey, Holy Spirit, what do you want from me for 2022? What are you asking me to dig into? You might want to pray that quietly now. You know, God, what's the vision for my life? What's the vision for my life in 2022? And I know to pray a prayer like that takes real um, boldness. And you might want to start by, you know, one prayer back from that, which says, hey, God, can you please restore my boldness? Can you please restore my courage? Can you please restore my faith or um, my resolve? But I have to warn you that faith, resolve, courage, um, that sense of boldness doesn't usually come first. It only usually comes as you step across the line. So just putting that out there, often we have to step across the line and faith comes next. But it is a key work of the Holy Spirit. There's kind of generate a characteristic boldness about the vision for the kingdom. And in fact, this word, uh, often there's ca- um, the word boldness often gets ca- uh, translated as ambition or um, courage. And it's on nearly every chapter of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. The whole book really is character characterized by kingdom vision and um, boldness. Um, even um, 
under house arrest, it says of Paul, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In his um, absolutely brilliant book called On the Road with St. Augustine, uh, James K.A. Smith, um, he's got this super challenging chapter on ambition, and he says this, if you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to notice a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It's sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep, get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe in this instance isn't humble. Ambition, drive, a sense of momentum is actually a much-needed gift, um, God-given gift, but also disordered and disconnected from the life of the Spirit and the person of Jesus. Ambition can also be incredibly damaging and incredibly destructive. You know, there's many examples of this in the Bible, not least Jesus' own disciples, um, which is Great, right? So good. Um, the standout example is on the night before um, the crucifixion. You can just imagine the scene. Jesus is kind of pretty clear what's going to happen here. And this like this dark shadow of the cross kind of looms across Jesus and across the room as Jesus explains, you know, what this is all going to mean. This, he's going to be executed and he's going to do this for on behalf of the disciples. And with deep kind of pathos, there's a sense of like, wow, this is my whole ministry. Um, coming together, and it's like, this is such a moment, I hope this is going to work, and then the disciples interrupt by saying, hey, um, who do you think is the greatest amongst us? You know, this is like an awkward, clanging question, like straight out of the scene of the office. It is so awkward, right? Jesus is literally saying to them, I'm going to die for you, and all they can worry about, yeah, yeah, ouch, gosh, sure, yeah, that's going to hurt. But on a separate note, uh, us 12 here, we can't really figure out who's the greatest. I'm not sure a vote would, you know, work. You're the son of God. Who do you say? And it's just so awkward, right? It's just, you know, it's so self-absorbed. You know, this is what ambition uncoupled from the life of the kingdom is like. And we've got plenty of examples of that in politics and culture and sadly in the life of the church too. But you know what? Jesus never ever um, says to get rid of it. The, the remedy for unordered ambition isn't no ambition. It's actually ambition rightly used or ambition rightly ordered. Nowhere does Jesus say ambition is wrong or bad in and of itself. Often when ambition or boldness or too much of that kind of pops up, Jesus actually just redirects it. Or often he chides the disciples or other people for not having enough of it, but never does he say, uh, get rid of it. 
And so here is the key. The invitation of Jesus is to not get rid of ambition. It's not to get rid of boldness. It's not to get rid of a sense of drive or what, you know, getting in behind what God wants to do in the world, but it's rather it's to have it rightly ordered within the kingdom of God. And this is not just a personality thing. You know, it's not just for those who score high on the belief, you know, on the strength finder, you know, uh, test. It's not just for those who are sevens on the Enneagram, um, Amazing all those people are, though. Um, this is actually a discipleship thing. This is about um, you know, understanding what Jesus is doing. Jesus actually lived with real boldness for the kingdom of God. But he did so in a way that was both winsome and challenging. Boldness or a sense of ambition is not a synonym for just like being loud or being bossy or being culturally clumsy. No, actually, boldness, ambition, rightly ordered by the kingdom of God. And when we step into that with a real sense of kingdom vision, a vision for what God wants to do in the world, the interesting reality is in that moment, we both find God and we find ourselves. Again, quoting um, James Smith, he says uh, this, Resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm, oh, sorry, because, uh, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. Once you've allowed God to find you and you're operating out of a deep, kind of, you know, really connected sense of you're a son or you're a daughter of God, completely secure in the unconditional love of God and the unfolding revolution that Jesus is continuing to um, implement out in our world, we're free to leave it every gift that God has given us radically for the purposes of God and the world. The need of the hour in 2022 is to reclaim our sense of confidence and boldness in the power and presence of God and also in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit and that pervasive sense that the kingdom of God is moving and changing and increasingly being established uh, in our world. I want to kind of land all this by praying a prayer that's a really old prayer. It's um, penned by Francis Drake, and it was penned in 1528. And so as we kind of gather back together, as we launch this series into, you know, what is Jesus continuing to do in this world? And we, as we kind of get into that in the next eight weeks, and as we think about our lives, as we regather back together, um, I want to pray this prayer over you. Francis Drake prayed, Disturb us, Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have, be- have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we'll find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, 
courage, hope, and love. Amen.